All right, so we're, we're back in Amos here. So Amos uh, chapter 5, verses 16 to 27. Move things over here. And uh, Pastor Nick had kind of started into this a little bit, but uh, we're, we're continuing on. And th- I found it really fitting that, uh, that I got to uh, preach on this passage when the, it fit really well with the last message at the beginning of October, I think, that I was able to preach. Um, it, it kind of slides right out from that, so it's, it's really perfect and fitting. Now, I would guess that if, with a fair amount of confidence that there are several within the room this morning or online who... Um, Who've been given a warning by the police at some point? Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> usually, I, I and, and I'm speaking mainly for for traffic violations. You know, you're speeding, and they stop you, and they're like, "Hey, you're going a little fast. We're not going to give you a ticket this time, but next time we'll make sure that we get you." Right? They give us warnings. Sometimes, even when we get stopped like that, we come up with excuses uh, to, just to justify why we were driving irresponsibly. And when I was thinking about that, it reminded me of a video that I had seen uh, once upon a time. It's a little while ago now, but it's still floating around on the internet because everything on the internet is forever. So this video and some of you may have even seen this, I'm fairly certain, there's a young man who's pulled over for speeding. And he tells the officer that he was, uh, he was headed to the hospital because his wife was going to be giving birth. Now, obviously, this was an excuse, and the, the young man wasn't even married. Uh, he didn't have a wife. He didn't have a baby on the way. So the officer follows him to the hospital, takes, let's... Let's go to the hospital then. Which hospital is it at? They go to the hospital where he preser- uh, the, the young man proceeds to find a woman, goes up to the desk and asks, are there any mothers having a, a, a baby where there is no father? She says, yeah, a lot, which is a sad commentary on reality. But the point is he's excited. He goes and finds a woman who's just being discharged from the hospital goes up behind her and says, hey, honey, and then whispers, I'm trying to get out of a speeding ticket. And she plays along. Then the montage continues. The police officer follows throughout life. So there are periods of of, um, milestones of life achievements throughout their lives where it's showing a birthday party for the kid and the police officer is there eating cake with them. As life progresses, his wife eventually passes, gets bad news that she's going to pass away, and he's, he's there in the office with them, receiving the news at the doctor's office, at the funeral. As him and his son come to terms with this and are arguing, his now teenage son, as he sees his son off to college and then get married, and the police officer is there all throughout this video. Then when he's old and gray... The officer looks at him and he says, all right, I'll let you off with a warning, and finally wanders off. 
and he's excited. He's like, yes, got away with it. But now he's in his 80s. Yeah. So that's what this kind of reminds me of a little bit when I was thinking about the speeding ticket thing. The great thing about a warning is that it, it defers any kind of con uh, consequence uh, for what we've done. So if you're speeding, you get a warning, you're not getting a ticket this time. But a friend of mine in law enforcement did tell me one time that those warnings do get logged in their system. So it's still there, there's still record of it, but you've gotten a warning. That way, if there is a pattern that comes up where, oh, you've been stopped for speeding five times and we've only given you warnings, then they can start to actually deal with the problem and say, okay, no, you need, you need to get a fine. Um, that, uh, that, that grace, relentless grace, eventually wears off and a punishment is given out. And if that negative trend continues, eventually you get demerits. Um, it can result in losing your license, your vehicle, um, sometimes going to jail. Uh, there's, there's kind of that, that record that this warning is trying to prevent, it's telling you, hey, calm down a little bit. If you keep going down this path, things are going to get bad. But what does speeding have to do with Israel in this passage in Amos? That's a great question. And specifically that story, what does that have to do with it? Um, so this passage that we read, it begins with God um, describing the scene. He's explaining that Israel will do what it always does. Because we've been talking about over the weeks here in Amos, talking about how Israel hasn't been faithful. They've continued to not do what God has asked them to do. Um, and essentially that things are, things are going to start looking bad for them because it's just not good. So Israel is going to do what it always does. God's laying it out here. They'll turn to God, quote-unquote, in repentance, and lament as they always do. They expect that they can come up with uh, a simple solution to circumvent the consequences, just as they've always done in the past. And that's, that's verses 16 to 17 here. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. So they're going to call all these people in to try to fix the situation. They'll let it get as bad as it can possibly get, and then say, oh, wait, God's not happy. We need people to, to come in and start praying and fix this. However, their record indicates that this is a continued pattern and that change is very unlikely. God's looking at it and he's saying that things will indeed be different this time, but not in the way that they're expecting, not in the way that he wants it to be different. So let's continue on. Verses 18 to 20 here. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why 
would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Hmm. It's not really what we tend to think about when we think about the day of the Lord, is it? Often we imagine celebration and rejoicing and gladness, right? That there's joy in the day of the Lord. And the party's really going full speed now. But God's giving us a different image of what the day of the Lord looks like. We often talk about looking forward to this momentous moment in the future, much as the people of Israel did. They looked forward to the day of the Lord. However, here God's asking, why? It is darkness and not light, gloom without brightness. That's very contrary to what we're used to hearing. But here's the fact. Israel believed that the day of the Lord would be a time when God would judge all of their enemies and that Israel themselves would be honored and rewarded. That Israel was going to be free and clear because they were God's chosen nation. These verses come as a shock, though, when he says, no, 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 no. This means Israel, because he's speaking to Israel here. This means that you're going to have severe judgment as well. Israel isn't free and clear. Israel is going to be judged with their enemies because of their lack of faithfulness to God. You see, we get so wrapped up in being God's chosen people that we miss some really key elements of Christianity sometimes. Some of the things that are, are really important to our Christian lives. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's continue on and see. Verses 21 to 24. Another, another surprising passage of verses here. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When I read this over and over again, because it's, it is kind of shocking, it's one of those things that you look at and you're like, wow. He's being mean to his people. I thought of being a parent, though. Parenting is tough. 
right? Sometimes sorry just doesn't cut it. Sometimes correcting the issue just doesn't cut it. Because they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And those are things that'll tick you off, right? You get that, parents? Probably. I'm not seeing nods, and that's because some of you have your teenagers with you. So I, yep. I'm just going to assume that you're being held against your will at this moment. But obviously, as a parent, you can't just stay mad at your kids for long, and you find a way to resolve things. But we see that God has gotten to this point here where it doesn't matter what you do anymore. You can come back to what I've told you to do, and you're just doing it out of fear of getting in trouble, pretty much. And it's, it's, it's an, empty, an empty resolution. So yes, our God is good. He's a good God of grace and compassion, love and patience. However, patience runs out eventually. God's goodness, I said he was good, his goodness means that he cannot abide with evil. He can't allow evil to continue just so that he can continue to be patient. That would be contrary to his goodness. He was patient. God was patient. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God has been patient. He's given them warnings and warnings and warnings. Their file is probably longer than mine was in high school, Mr. Melanson. He has been patient for generations. He gave opportunity after opportunity for Israel to turn to him and love him, and only him. But they've refused over and over and over and over. It's to the point now that God's calling out the position of their hearts, how their hearts are postured. He will no longer accept their nominal acts of devotion that they do just out of, this is what we do. He despises their feasts. He won't accept their burnt offerings, or brunette, as my typo says. He won't pay attention to their sacrifices anymore, and he won't listen to their worship. I, I, that, that, that really hit me this time. Uh, take away from me the noise of your songs. When we read about worship throughout the Bible, it's, it's talked about as this sweet scent and all of these wonderful flowery words. And here, it says, take away from me the noise of your songs. He won't listen to it anymore. Because it's just noise. All of these rituals and observances of the law, they've become just that. They're empty rituals. Empty observances. There's nothing to them. There's no substance anymore. They do them 
because that's the way it's always been done. That's the way we grew up. You go to church on a Sunday morning, you sing the songs, you listen to the sermon sometimes, and you go home. That's what Christianity is about. It's what they know. But God says, enough is enough. He's tired of this. Israel's heart is no longer in it. Verse 25, did you bring me or bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? That's recalling when their heart was actually in it. They had just come out of Egypt. They screwed up and spent 40 years wandering around in circles. But their heart was in it because they remembered what they had been through. It was still close to their hearts. Their heart was in it. They, they, they actually meant what they were doing. They were following the law because God commanded it, and they wanted to be right with God when they followed the law. The worship meant something. The observances meant something, but it no longer does at this point. It's empty and it's meaningless. Their heart is no longer in this relationship. So their record indicates that they're not going to change. So what does God say? Let justice roll down. Isn't that kind of a frightening statement to hear from God? Let justice roll down. That's, I don't, that, that's a terrifying image no matter what. And he does describe it, but let justice roll down from your creator, from the one true God. So verses 26 and 27, you shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. He's held off as long as he could. He wanted to give us a chance to make things right, but Israel just couldn't cut it. So now he needs to take action to make Israel understand that they are in the wrong. He's sending them into exile where they can begin to understand their need for them, for him. A lot of times it's in these really difficult times that hearts can change and be molded. Kind of that, that image of pressure and a diamond, right? Carbon has the pressure applied and it creates the diamonds. That sort of idea. So with that, I think about how the church in North America is statistically, like there's studies that show this, stagnating and in decline. There are a lot of denominations that are, they're, they're dying. They're in decline. It's huge in North America, and it's something that conferences are happening about. How do we revitalize the church? How do we do this? How do we do that? 
Well, we can't do that. God's the only one that can. But we don't see growth here the way that we do in countries where persecution's happening or in countries where people's faith in God is what helps them survive day to day. We don't see that kind of growth in North America. When we're comfortable the way that we are, our hearts can become clogged with the things that really don't matter. We can start to worry about petty, petty things, even within the church, especially within the church. But Amos is a good warning to us today. Us, Israel, God's people, God's followers. Especially on a day like today where we're coming to the Lord's table, it's important that we take time to examine our hearts, right? We have to be right with other people. We have to be right with God. That's important when we're coming to the table. Is our observance of God's law pure? Or is it because that's what we know? That's what we grew up with. That's what we were taught. We sang all the songs in Sunday school. We did all the actions. We come to church. We go home. Does our worship come from a place of truly loving God? Or is it a facade? Is it something that, hey, people are going to see that I'm really on fire for the Lord, and that's all that it is to us, that there's no connection, no relationship with God there? It makes us look good in the community. Friends, we need to really look at our hearts today. What's our motivation for being here today? Each one of us that's here sitting in the chairs today, what's our motivation for being here? What's our motivation for calling ourselves Christians? Are we truly believers who put our faith in God? When we get pressed, are we going to turn tail and run? Are we relying on God for every aspect of our lives to provide for us? Or are we just doing it uh, to make ourselves feel warm and fuzzy? It feels good to go to church. And that's all that really is. God asks us to commit our hearts genuine, er, to genuinely worshiping him. Only him. Otherwise will be judged as an enemy of Israel on the day of the Lord. So before we head to the table this morning, I want to spend some time in prayer. And what I'm hoping you'll be okay with and do with me here, I'd like for us to break into some groups of half a dozen-ish that can pray together. 
And I want us to pray for our hearts to be changed, for God to really work in our hearts and shape and mold that. That our hearts would solely belong to God and nothing else, no one else, God alone. That our hearts would be postured to yearn for him. That we would follow his ways in all that we do. I want us to pray that our hearts would be committed to him and growing closer to him. Not just to come to church on Sunday because it feels good to do it. But that we are actually looking to be changed by God. And then after we're done with this, I'll invite, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pray to, to end things off. And I'm going to invite Pastor Velma up to lead us in communion. But um, if we could do that, if we could spend a couple of minutes um, just praying together in groups. I'm going to invite you to split off into your groups if it's your row or whatever um, right now and pray to that end for us. Jesus, we thank you today for the beautiful sound of your people gathering in your name in prayer. And Father, I just pray that your spirit would move amongst us Father, that we would feel, that we would just feel your presence in our hearts, Lord, and, and that we, we would just feel that urge just to lay our hearts down before you, Father, to let our worship become pure, Jesus, to let our seeking after you, Father, become pure and that God you would be the only guiding light in our lives so father today we we come before you and we just ask for that change and all of these people here today father who are praying who desire to seek after you and only you God we just ask that you would move in their hearts so, Jesus, as we come to the table this morning, Father, I just pray for a renewing of our hearts, a renewing of our commitment to you, Father, and remembering why you sent your son to die on the cross, Father. That it's only through you that our hearts can be changed. We can't do it ourselves. That, God, we need you in order to bring about that change. And that, Father, this change would be real. It wouldn't be superficial, but that, God, we would long for you. That we would yearn for you and desire to be in your presence. And that's why we do it, Father. Not for what, how it benefits us. So, God, I, I ask this in your name. And I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your patience in our lives, Lord. So, Jesus, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.